Welcome to Fast Asleep. Welcome to all of you. And hey, this is for you, Canada. And we thank you for being so loyal. In 2013, at the magnificent age of 82, Alice Monroe became the first Canadian woman to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. She's quoted as saying, I would really hope this would make people see the short story as an important art, not just something played around with until you got a novel. No, there's nothing obscure or difficult to understand in Ms. Monroe's writing. So let's get started and you'll see. Tuck in everybody and enjoy The Shining Houses. Mary sat on the back steps of Mrs. Fullerton's house, talking, or really listening, to Mrs. Fullerton, who sold her eggs. She had come in to pay the egg money on her way to Edith's, Debbie's, birthday party. Mrs. Fullerton did not pay calls herself, and she did not invite them, but... Once a business pretext was established, she liked to talk. And Mary found herself exploring her neighbor's life as she had once explored the lives of grandmothers and aunts by pretending to know less than she did, asking for some story she had before. See, this way, remembered episodes emerged each time with slight differences of content, meaning color, and yet with a pure reality that usually attaches to things which are, at least part, legend. She had almost forgotten that there are people whose loves can be seen like this. She did not talk to many old people anymore. Most of the people she knew had lives like her own, in which things were not sorted out yet, and it is not certain if this thing or that should be taken seriously. Now, Mrs. Fullerton had no doubts or questions of this kind. How was it possible, for instance, not to take seriously the broad, blithe back of Mr. Fullerton disappearing down the road on a summer day and not to return. Oh, I didn't know that, said Mary. I always thought Mr. Fullerton was dead. Oh, he's no more dead than I am, said Mrs. Fullerton, sitting up straight. A bold Plymouth Rock, that's a chicken, walked across the bottom step, and Mary's little boy, Danny, got up to give rather cautious chase. He's just gone off on his travels, that's what he is. May have gone up north, may have gone to the States, I don't know, but he's not dead. I would have felt it. He's not old, neither, you know. Not old like I am. He was my second husband. He was younger. I never made any secret of it. Oh, I had this place, and I raised my children, and 
buried my first husband before ever Mr. Fullerton came upon the scene. Why, <laughs> one time in the post office, we was standing together by the wicket, and I went over to put a letter in the box and left my bag behind me, and Mr. Fullerton turns to go after me, and the girl calls to him. She says, here, your mother's <laughs> left her purse. Mary smiled, answering Mrs. Fullerton's high-pitched and not trustful laughter. Mrs. Fullerton was old, as she had said, older than you might think, seeing her hair still fuzzy and black, her clothes slatternly gay, uh, untidy, dime store brooches pinned to her raveling sweater. Her eyes showed it, black as plums with a soft inanimate sheen. Things sank into them and, well, they never changed. The life in her face was all in the nose and mouth, which was always twitching and fluttering, drawing tight grimace lines down her cheeks. When she came around every Friday on her egg deliveries, her hair was curled, her blouse held together by a bunch of cotton flowers, her mouth painted a spidery and ferocious line of red. She would not show herself to her new neighbors in any sad old womanish disarray. Thought I was his mother, she said. I didn't care. <laughs> I had a good laugh. But what I was telling you, she said, a day in summer, he was off work. He had the ladder up and he was picking me the cherries off my black cherry tree. I came out to hang my clothes and there was this man I never seen before in my life taking the pail of cherries my husband hands down to him, helping himself too, not backward. He sat down and ate cherries out of my pail. Who's that? I said to my husband and he says, oh, he's just a fellow passing. Well, if he's a friend of yours, I said, he's welcome to stay for supper. Well, what are you talking about? He says, I never seen him before. So I never said another thing. Well, Mr. Fuller went and talked to him eating my cherries that I intended for a pie. But that man, that man would talk to anybody. Tramp, Jehovah's Witness, anybody. That didn't need to mean anything. And half an hour after that fellow went off, she said, Mr. Fullerton comes out in his brown jacket and his hat on. I have to meet a man downtown. Well, how long will you be? I said, oh, not long. So off he goes down the road, walking down to where that old tramp went. We was all in the bush then. And, well, something made me look after him. He must be hot in that coat, I said. And that's when I knew.
He wasn't coming back. Yet I couldn't have expected it. You see, he liked it here. He was talking about putting chinchillas in the backyard. What's in a man's mind, even when you're living with him, you will never know. Was it long ago? said Mary. Twelve years. Oh, my boys wanted me to sell and go and, oh, live in rooms, but I said no. I had my hands in a nanny goat, too, at that time, more or less a pet. I had a pet coon, too, for a while. I, I used to feed him chewing gum. Well, I said, husbands, maybe come and go, but a place you've lived 50 years now, that is something else. <laughs> Making a joke of it with my family. <laughs> Besides, I thought, if Mr. Fullerton was to come back, well, he'd, he'd come back here, not knowing where else to go. Of course, he'd hardly know where to find me the way it's changed now. But I always had the idea he might have suffered a, a loss of memory, and it might come back. That has happened. I'm not complaining. Sometimes it, it seems to me about as reasonable a man should go as stay. I don't mind changes either. That helps me out with my egg business. Oh, 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 but this babysitting? Oh, all the time, one or the other is asking me about babysitting. And I tell them, I got my own house to sit in and I raised my share of children. Oh, Mary, remembering the birthday party, got up and called to her little boy. You know, I thought I might offer my black cherries for sale next summer, Mrs. Fullerton said. Come and pick your own, and they're 50 cents a box. I can't risk my old bones up a ladder no more. Oh, that's too much, Mary said, smiling. They're cheaper than that at the supermarket. Mrs. Fullerton already hated the supermarket for lowering the price of eggs. Mary shook out her last cigarette and left it with her, saying she had another package in her purse. Mrs. Fullerton was fond of a cigarette, but would not accept one unless you took her by surprise. Mm, babysitting would pay for them, Mary thought. At the same time, she she was rather pleased with Mrs. Fullerton for being so unaccommodating. When Mary came out of this place, she always felt as if she were passing through barricades. The house and its surroundings were so self-sufficient with their complicated and seemingly unalterable layout of vegetables and flower beds, apple and cherry trees, wired chicken run, berry patch and wooden walks, wood pile, oh, and a great many roughly built dark little sheds for hens or rabbits or a goat. Here was no open and straightforward plan, no order that an outsider could understand. Yet what was haphazard? Time had made final. The place had become fixed, impregnable, 
all its accumulations necessary until it seemed that, well, even the washtubs, mops, couch springs, and stacks of old police magazines on the back porch were there to stay. Mary and Danny walked down the road that had been called in Mrs. Fullerton's time Wicks Road, but now was marked on the maps of the subdivision as Heather Drive. The name of the subdivision was Garden Place, and its streets were named for flowers. On either side of the road, the earth was raw. The ditches were running full. Planks were laid across the open ditches. Planks approached the doors of the newest houses. The new white and shining houses sat side by side in long rows in the wound of the earth. <laughs> she always thought of them as white houses, though of course they were not entirely white. They were stucco and siding, and only the stucco was white. The siding was painted in shades of blue, pink, green, yellow, all fresh and vivid colors. Last year, just at this time in March, the bulldozers had come in to clear away the houses, clear away the brush and second growth. Oh, and great trees of the mountain forest. Why, in a little while, the houses were going up among the boulders, the huge torn stumps, the unimaginable upheavals of that earth. Now, the houses were frail at first, just skeletons of new wood standing up in the dusk of the cold spring days. But the roofs, the roofs went on, black and green and blue and red. Oh, and the stucco and the siding. The windows were put in and plastered with signs that said, Murray's Glass, French's Hardwood Floors. It could be seen that the houses were real people who would live in them, came out and tramped around in the mud on Sundays. They were for people like Mary and her husband and their child, with not much money but expectations of more. Garden Place was already put down in the minds of people who understood addresses as less luxurious than Pine Hills, but more desirable than Wellington Park. The bathrooms were beautiful, with three-part mirrors, ceramic tile, and colored plumbing. The cupboards in the kitchen were light birch or mahogany, and there were copper lighting fixtures there and in the dining ells. Brick planters matching the fireplaces separated the living rooms and halls. The rooms were all large and light, and the basements dry, and all this soundness and excellence seemed to be clearly, proudly indicated on the face of each house. Those ingeniously similar houses that looked calmly out at each other all the way down the street. Today, since it was Saturday, 
All the men were out working around their houses. They were digging drainage ditches and making rockeries and clearing off and burning torn branches and brush. They worked with competitive violence and energy, all this being new to them. They were not men who made their livings by physical work. All day Saturday and Sunday, they worked like this, so that in a year or two, there should be green terraces, rock walls, shapely flower beds, and ornamental shrubs. The earth must be heavy to dig now. It had been raining last night and this morning. But the day was brightening, and the clouds had broken, revealing a long, thin triangle of sky. Oh, it's blue, still cold and delicate, a winter color. Behind the houses on one side of the road were pine trees, their ponderous symmetry, not much stirred by any wind. These were to be cut down any day now to make room for a shopping center, which had been promised when the houses were sold. And under the structure of this new subdivision, there was still something else to be seen. And that was the old city, the old wilderness city that had lain on the side of the mountain. It had to be called a city because, well, there were tram lines running into the woods. The houses had numbers and there were all the public buildings of a city down by the water. But houses like Mrs. Fullerton's had been separated from each other by uncut forest and a jungle of wild blackberry and salmonberry bushes. These surviving houses with thick smoke coming out of their chimneys, walls unpainted and patched and showing different degrees of age and darkening rough sheds and stacked woods and compost heaps and gray board fences around them. Well, these appeared every so often among the large new houses of Mimosa and Marigold and Heather Drive. Dark, enclosed, expressing something like savagery in their disorder and the steep unmatched angles of roofs and lean-tos. Just not possible on these streets. Ah, but there... What are they saying? said Edith, putting on more coffee. She was surrounded in her kitchen by the ruins of the birthday party, cake and molded jellies and cookies with animal faces. A balloon rolled underfoot. The children had been fed, had posed for flash cameras, and endured the birthday games. Now, well, they were playing in the back bedrooms and the basement while their parents had coffee. What are they saying in there? said Edith. Oh, I wasn't listening, 
Mary said, holding the empty cream pitcher in her hand. She went to the sink window. Oh, the rent in the clouds had been torn wide open and the sun was shining. The house seemed too hot. Mrs. Fullerton's house, said Edith, hurrying back to the living room. Oh, Mary knew what they were talking about. Her neighbor's conversation, otherwise not troubling, might at any moment snag itself on this subject. And Eddie, menacingly, in familiar circles of complaint, causing her to look despairingly out of windows or down into her lap, trying to find some wonderful explanatory word to just bring it to a stop. She did not succeed, and she had to go back. They were waiting for cream. A dozen neighborhood women sat around the living room, absently holding the balloons they'd just been given by their children, because the children on the street were so young, and also because any gathering together of the people who lived there was considered a, a healthy thing in itself. Most birthday parties were attended by mothers as well as children. Women who saw each other every day met now in earrings and nylons and skirts with their hair fixed and faces applied. Oh, some of the men were there too. Steve, who was Edith's husband, and others he had invited in for beer. They were all in their work clothes. The subject just introduced was one of the few on which male and female interest came together. I'll tell you what I'd do if I was next door to her, Steve said, beaming good-naturedly in expectation of laughter. Why, I'd send my kids over there to play with matches. Oh, funny, Edith said. Well, it's past joking. You joke. I try to do something. I even phoned the municipal hall. Oh, what did they say? Said Mary Lou Ross. Well, I said, couldn't they get her to paint it at least or pull down some of the shacks? And they said, no, they couldn't. And I said, I thought there must be some kind of ordinance applied to people like that. And they said, they knew just how I felt and they were very sorry. But no, but no. Oh, but what about the chickens? I thought, oh, they wouldn't let you and me keep chickens, but she has got some special dispensation about that too. I, I forgot how it goes. Well, I'm going to stop buying them, Janie Inger said. The supermarket's cheaper, and who cares that much about fresh? Oh, and my God, the smell. I said to Carl, I knew we were coming to the sticks, but I didn't, somehow didn't picture us next door to a barnyard. Well, across the street is worse than next door. It makes me wonder why we ever bothered with a picture window. Whenever anybody comes to see us, well, I just want to draw the drapes so they won't see what's across from us. 
Okay, okay, Steve said, cutting heavily through these female voices. What Carl and I started to tell you was that if we can work this Lang deal, she has got to go. It's simple and it's legal. That's the beauty of it. What Lang deal? Mm -hmm. Well, we're getting to that. Carl and I have been cooking this for a couple of weeks and we didn't like to say anything in case it didn't work out. Take it, Carl. <laughs> well, she's on the lane allowance, that's all, Carl said. He was a real estate salesman, stocky, earnest, successful. I had an idea it might be that way, so I went down to the municipal hall and looked it up. Oh, what does that mean, dear, said Janie casual, wifely. Well, this is it, Carl said. There's an allowance for a lane. There always has been. The idea being, if the area ever got built up, they would put a lane through. But they never thought that would happen. People just built where they liked. She's got part of her house and half a dozen of those shacks sitting right where the lane has to go. So, what we do now, we get the municipality to put through a lane. You know, we need a lane anyway. And then she has to get out. It's the law. <laughs> it's the law, said Steve, radiating admiration. Oh, what a smart boy. These real estate operators are smart boys. Well, does she get anything? said Mary Lou. I mean, I am sick of looking at it and all, but I don't want to see anybody in the poorhouse. Oh, she'll get paid more than she's worth. Look, it's to her advantage. She'll get paid for it, and you know she couldn't sell it. Oh, she couldn't give it away. Mary set her coffee cup down before she spoke and hoped her voice would sound all right, not emotional or scared. Um, but let's remember, she's been here a long time, she said. Why, she was here before, before most of us were born. She was trying desperately to think of other words, words more sound and reasonable than these. She could not expose to this positive tide any notion that they might think flimsy or romantic, or she would destroy her own argument. But really, she had no argument. She could try all night and never find any words to stand up to, to their words, which came at her now, invincibly, from all sides. Shack, eyesore, filthy, property, value. Do you honestly think that people who let their property get so run down have that much claim to our consideration? Janie said, feeling her husband's plan was being attacked. She's been here 40 years, and now we're here, Carl said. So 
it goes. And whether you realize it or not, just standing there, that house is bringing down the resale value of every house on this street. I'm in the business. I know. And these were joined by other voices. It did not matter much what they said, oh, as long as they were full of self-assertion and anger. That was their strength, proof of their adulthood, of themselves and their seriousness. The spirit of anger rose among them, bearing up their young voices, sweeping them together as, well, as on a flood of intoxication. And they admired each other in this new behavior as property owners, as people who admire each other for being drunk. We might as well get everybody now, Steve said, save going around to so many places. It was supper time, getting dark outside. Everybody was preparing to go home, mothers buttoning children's coats, children clutching without much delight their balloons and whistles and paper baskets full of jelly beans. They'd stopped fighting, almost stopped noticing each other. The party had disintegrated. The adults, too, had grown calmer and felt tired. Edith? Edith, have you got a pen? Edith brought a pen, and they spread the petition for the lane, which Carl had drawn up on the dining room table, clearing away the paper plates with smears of dried ice cream. People began to sign mechanically as they said goodbye. Steve was still scowling slightly. Carl stood with one hand on the paper, businesslike, but proud. Mary knelt on the floor and struggled with Danny's zipper. She got up and put on her own coat. She smoothed her hair put on her gloves, and then took them off again. And when she could not think of anything else to do, she walked past the dining room table on her way to the door. Carl held out the pen. Oh, I, I can't sign that, she said. Her face flushed up at once. Her voice was trembling. Steve touched her shoulder. What's the matter, honey? I... I just don't think we have the right. We haven't the right. Mary, don't you care how things look? You live here, too. No, I... I don't care. Oh. Wasn't it strange how in your imagination, when you stood up for something, oh, your voice rang and... People stared abashed, but in real life, they all just smiled in a rather special way, and you saw that what you had really done was serve yourself up as a conversational delight for the next coffee party. Oh, don't worry, Mary. Oh, she's got money in the bank. Janie said. Well, she must have. Now, you know, I asked her to babysit for me once, and she practically spit in my face. She 
isn't exactly a charming old lady, you know. I know she isn't a charming old lady, Mary said. Steve's hand still rested on her shoulder. Hey, what do you think? What do you think we are, a bunch of ogres? Nobody wants to turn her out for the fun of it, Carl said. It's unfortunate, we all know that, but we we have to think of the community. Yes, said Mary, but she put her hands in the pockets of her coat and turned to say thank you to Edith. Thank you for the birthday party. It occurred to her, her that, well, they were right for themselves, for whatever it was, they had to be. And Mrs. Fullerton was old. She had dead eyes. Nothing could touch her. Mary went out. And she walked with Danny up the street. She saw the curtains being drawn across living room windows. Cascades of flowers, of leaves, of geometrical designs shut off these rooms from the night. Outside, it was quite dark. The white houses were growing dim, the clouds breaking and breaking, and smoke blowing from Mrs. Fullerton's chimney. The pattern of garden place, so assertive in the daytime, seemed to shrink at night into the raw black mountainside. The voices in the living room have blown away, Mary thought. Oh, if they would blow away and their plans be forgotten, if one thing could be left alone. But these are people who win, and they are good people. They want homes for their children where they help each other when there's trouble. They plan a community, oh, saying that word, as if they found a modern and well-proportioned magic in it. And no possibility anywhere of a mistake. There is nothing you can do at present, but put your hands in your pockets and keep a disaffected heart. Good night.